The reading is taken from Isaiah 41. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to wind-blown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed. By a path his feet have not travelled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last. I am he. The islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. They help each other and say to their companions, Be strong. The metal worker encourages the goldsmith. And the one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One says of the welding, It is good. The other nails down the idol, so it will not topple. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth. From its farthest corners I called you. I said, You are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm Jacob. Little Israel, do not fear, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them, the wind will pick them up, and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst. But I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together, so that people may see and know, may consider and understand, that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were, so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds, so we may know that you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed 
and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. I have stirred up one from the north, and he comes, one from the rising sun who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if he were a potter treading the clay. Who told of this from the beginning, so we could know, or beforehand, so we could say, he was right. No one told of this, no one foretold it, no one heard any words from you. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good news. I look, but there is no one. No one among the gods to give counsel. No one to give answer when I ask them. See, they are all fools. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, uh, that's uh, a very good Bible reading from Boko. Uh, if you've got a phone, or I know some people have got uh, tablets and uh, Bibles with them, that's brilliant. Uh, be awesome just to have the words in front of you and to be able to follow through. But uh, I'll try and try my best to lead us through it and read various points of that uh, as we go along. Shall we pray? Sovereign God. As we read your word um, over 2,000 years ago to your people in the past, we trust that you have a message for your people throughout time because you haven't changed. And we face many of the challenges that they did too. And so, Heavenly Father, would you be speaking your word afresh to each of us this morning? In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Back in the 1980s and 90s, um, the courtroom drama was quite a popular thing for kind of TV shows and films. Um, You may have have memories of a favourite one. I think the one that stands out for me is a film called A Few Good Men. You have Tom Cruise, the up-and-coming lawyer, versus Jack Nicholson, the impressive colonel with lots of experience and lots of intimidation, I seem to remember. And the last scene is this fabulous showdown between the two of them. There's probably something much more up-to-date for the younger people in this, uh, in this uh, congregation because settling issues between people in a court, well, that's as pretty much as old as the hills in some way or another. Because people doing wrong and going wrong, well, that's as old as the hills, and people then trying to sort it out follows on. And Isaiah 41 is something like that kind of setting. It's something like a courtroom. If you look at verse 1, it's a summons. It's to all the nations, even the faraway islands like the one we live on. We meet the judge as well in verse 1, the creator of all. Your creator and mine, verse 4, confirms that in this passage. We, you and I, are guests of God's reality. That is our existence, your life and mine. It's gifts from him, not rights belonging to us. And the second part of chapter 40, actually, if we had been reading through this in one sweep, we would have heard it already. 
Uh, let me give you a flavour of chapter 40. Who has measured the, this is verse 12, if you're looking it up, uh, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in the balance? Verse 15, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. And verse 22, my favourite, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. Puts you and me in perspective, doesn't it? Little squeaky things jumping up and down. <laughs> Compared to Almighty God, that's what we are, though, isn't it? So by virtue of him being our creator, he is rightfully our judge. We're accountable to him for the way we live in his world. And that means he's also the prosecution in what we're reading. The accused, well, that's verse 1. That's the nations of the earth, the people of uh, planet earth, the nations, all of us, the islands as well. But God is not against the nations. He's not against the people of the world. But he is against something that we're all doing, that we all default to. And that's when we get to the charge. The charge is that the nations have chosen to worship idols instead of the living God. We've replaced relationship with our God, with our Creator who loves us, with things that we've made up, ways of living, ways of worshipping, practices in our lives that are centred on what we want, our thoughts about what's worth worshipping, what's worth giving our lives to, things of our own choosing. It was John Calvin 450 years ago who coined the phrase that our hearts are idol factories. We make stuff up. We imagine a God that fits with how we see things, what we want, and then we choose a form of spirituality, a pattern of life and worship that goes with what we imagine rather than which goes with the real God, the living God, and what he says, which means we replace the true God and relationship with him with something of our own imaginings. The case for the prosecution, well, we find that in the early part, verses 2 to 7. Uh, verse 2 looks to a historical event, the rise of a new ruler who's going to be really impressive. He's actually going to be terrifying, this person, because he is going to conquer everything and everyone. And Isaiah will name him later. Uh, we know him from history. He's Cyrus, uh, the Persian king who would create the Persian Empire, which just rolled everything in front of it for, uh, for a long time. The political commentators of the day would have noticed his rapid rise and they would have all had their theories. But in verses 2 to 4, the Creator draws back the curtain to reveal that he has chosen to raise Cyrus up and to hand nations over to him. And then we get to the heart of God's case, verses 5 to 7. The reaction to Cyrus is totally understandable. It's fear. Well, why wouldn't you be afraid if he's going to just, you know, every army that stands up to him is going to be defeated? Of course they were afraid. That's a very understandable reaction. But their response, well, their response was to double down on their idolatry, to try harder at it, to expect more from their idols and to build new ones. That's what we find as we read verses 5 to 7. 
Now, if you remember, if you hear for previous weeks, the people who first heard this message and read it were people, the people of Israel taken away into exile in Babylon, and, and there they would have been surrounded by idols and idol worship. It would have come with the junk mail uh, with the post, you know, a nice shiny leaflet advertising, why don't you treat yourself to a new idol? You know, you've got a one that's made of the best quality wood. If you want to, you know, a little bit, if you're a bit more discerning customer, why not get one covered in silver? Or the really deluxe one, covered in gold. And verse 7, everyone has nail holes, so you can nail your idol down and it won't topple over. I'm trying to exaggerate that because I think Isaiah is mocking them, isn't he? I mean, what kind of God do you need to nail down so it won't topple over? Now, I can um, imagine the people who heard Isaiah say this, hang on a minute, Isaiah, you know, we know it's just a statue, it's not actually our God, it just represents our God, but that's still his point. If this representation of God can't speak, can't move, needs to be looked after by human beings, what does that say about the God that it represents? Now, just because our culture has stopped making physical idols doesn't mean our hearts are any different from the people back then or from the people in other parts of the world who do make physical idols and physical statues as part of their worship. Our hearts are still idol factories, even when we don't make actual statues. Because this is why we do it. Human beings, all of us, young and old, we have needs. Uh, There are three S's that summarise our needs. Security, we need security, we need satisfaction, and we need significance. All of which we're meant to find in our God. He wants to give us all of those things. But idolatry is when we take something good in God's world... You know, gold and silver are fantastic. They made them into statues. We take something good in God's world and we try and make it deliver security, satisfaction, significance. And um, here, particularly, it, the issue is security. And I think that's, that's why this resonates with where we're at. Because in a complicated world where things threaten us and can kill us, where things threaten our future and the future of our families... We want to say, well, what's going to give us security? How can we know that we've got a future, that it's going to be okay? In the past, they had these crazy fertility cults like Baal worship you read about in the Bible, and they were told if you make the right sacrifices, and there were some horrendous ones they were asked to make, if you make them, though, it'll all be worth it because the the God that you're making them for, if you make enough of them, that God will be able to provide... uh, crops for you and he will be able to guarantee the future for you notice it's that way around people doing things for the god so that the god would then help them and isaiah is just he's just trying to he's trying to help people see what's going on here see the confidence trick that's been pulled on you he's trying to help people to work out what's going on and to see it so that they can come back to God. So, up to date. What is the equivalent, the invisible equivalent for us in our culture? What do we trust to give us a secure future in our culture? 
something good that God wants you and me to have, but which becomes the center in our lives, in our thinking, in our dreaming, the thing we sacrifice for, the number one that we live for, the thing that we believe will secure our future. For some people, um, it's sport. I'm using a simple example for sport. They believe that um, if they, you know, sport is kind of the center of their lives, and that's the thing that certainly gives them satisfaction, and as long as they've got sport, they think, well, you know, the future will be fine. Uh, or, or something other simple is travel and holidays. You know, as long as I can go away somewhere, you know, I can cope with the rest of my life. Uh, for many people, it's a good education, an important thing. Um, but uh, that becomes the centre and the thing you sacrifice everything else for. For younger people, it may be. I don't know whether you guys have a social media profile or your mates do, and, and they want to be kind of like super popular on that, and they think that'll guarantee my future. Uh, for the country, people talk about having a strong economy, don't they? That's the thing. Uh, for all of us, science and medicine, not least at the moment. And what's happened in the last six months is that every single one of those things that I have named has either been taken away from us at some stage or exposed as limited. It can do so much, but not everything. How do you know if one of those things or something else has been an idol for you? How do you know? How do I know? Well, we've had the last six months, and we've had how we felt about things then, and let me say, I mean, if, if you know, uh, one of those things that was taken away in lockdown, actually, they're all good things. So if we just thought, oh, I'm really sad, I really miss that, can't wait till all this nonsense is over so we can get back to, that's, that's fair enough, that's an understandable reaction. But if actually it's not that, it's something much stronger, if it's kind of, I'm bereft and, and I just kind of, I can't cope, I can't get out of bed in the morning, I can't imagine a future without that thing, I, I just can't, I'm beside myself, don't know what to do, I've lost my sense of purpose. Can you see the difference? Can you see how one of those things might be operating as an idol in your life? If it's become that important and that central? And, and when you lost it, did you reach out to God and recenter yourself on the living God who loves you? Or did you simply stay with your defeat, de feelings of dejection or tough it out or replace one idol with another one, Netflix or whatever it was? It's only when we center our lives on the living God that all those other good things will find their right place. Him at the center, all those things in our lives operating, but in our lives blessing us, but, but, but our hearts fixed on God and loving him in response to all he gives. I listened to a really inspiring interview yesterday. It's on the BBC website, on BBC Sounds. Um, it's, um, it's really worth having a listen to. It's, uh, I'd not heard it before. Ellis James and, and John Robbins, uh, they're talking to a variety of people asking... How, how do you cope? And uh, they, uh, earlier this week, they talked to a guy called Fabrice Mwamba. If you don't know his name, you may have heard it somewhere around the 17th of March, 2012. He was 22 years old, playing for Bolton Wanderers against Tottenham in the quarterfinal of the FA Cup when he collapsed on the pitch of a heart attack 
and his heart stopped for a total of 78 minutes. You'll have to listen to the interview to get all the details because as the doctors did their work, as his family and church prayed, he recovered really quickly with no brain damage. He's had to have a pacemaker on his heart, but he's come through it all. Uh, He's a Christian man, and he's come through it all without bitterness, and uh, just seeing the whole thing in the context of his relationship with God, and seeing every day as a gift, in fact, every breath as a gift, which God continues to give him, loving his family and celebrating the good things that God has given him in life. As I say, you, uh, listen to the interview. But this is what um, uh, Ellis James uh, said when he introduces it. He says, if you could bottle what he has, that lack of bitterness and cynicism, that just complete positivity, I mean, if you could just inject that into the population at large, can you imagine what we'd be like as a species, as humans? See, maybe I ought to write in. That isn't a perfect description of what it is to come to know Jesus, to put your trust in him and to receive the Holy Spirit, but it's not far off, is it? It's not an injection, it's faith in Jesus. Do you see what Fabrice Mwamba has found is available to the whole human race, to the entire species, through Jesus Christ? That actually God's made us to find our security, our significance, our satisfaction in him. To find that anchor for our souls so that even if we do lose our health, our career, our uh, sport, um, as Fabrice has, uh, we're still not bitter and cynical because we understand that everything's a gift from God. That leads us to the next section, which is verses 18 to 20, and the beneficiaries of the court case, God's people. God's people are called his servant in verse 8. We all know what a servant usually does, but there's no mention here, unlike with the idols, there's no mention here of people, the people of God doing anything for him. Israel doesn't help God, it's the other way around. Uh, So chapter 41, verse 10, I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Verse 14, do not be afraid, you worm Jacob, little Israel. Do not fear, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Even less than the grasshopper, Uh, God's people have now become worms. And you see from verse 20, the main way they serve God is to be blessed by him. Verse 20, so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this and that the Holy One of Israel has created it. Isn't it the same for you and me? Isn't it the same for us? What do I contribute to salvation? The only thing I contribute is my sin. Jesus, the Saviour, the one who dies for me and for you. He's the one who does all the work of salvation. He's the one who blesses me and blesses you, blesses all who put their faith in him. It's the same for us now as it was for Israel in the past. God is the one who rescues his people. And this prophecy of Isaiah is designed to wake us up to help us to realise that, to see how good he is. And if in our life we've been replacing God a bit with an idol over here or one over there or a couple or 
just to come back and to enjoy him and to be his people. And so the uh, case for the defense gets uh, a quick outing in verses uh, 21 to 24. Although we don't actually hear a case for the defense. Because who's representing the nations, do you remember, from a minute ago? The idols. Self-made gods. The challenge is put to them. In, in they come to the courtroom, verse 22. The challenge is put, um, tell us, idols, about the former things. Can you explain how we got to this point? And tell us, um, tell us what the future holds. You know, speak up. In fact, it's even more mocking than that, isn't it? Do something whether good or bad, just do something. Verse 24, but you are less than nothing. And your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. And you can see why, can't you? When the living God is calling us back to himself. Isaiah is doing his uttermost to unmask idolatry, to show how empty and wrong it is so that we can turn back to God's so, this winter. Our world again knows fear, doesn't it, at the moment? Don't be surprised when people you know and love put their hope in some good thing that God has given which is not God and they choose an idol instead of God. Don't be surprised, it's always gone on. Whether it's something big like science and medicine or the economy, if only we make the right sacrifices, or whether it's something every day like uh, dreaming of a, of a proper holiday next year or at least we've got sport back on TV. Now all of those things have their right place. But to expect any of them to save us, whether to keep us in our right minds or to literally save us, that's idolatry. So... Where we see that in ourselves, let's repent and come back to our Creator as the centre of our lives, seeking, trusting Him for our security, our significance, and our satisfaction. He is all we need. His love in this life, an eternal future with Him, that's where we find our hope and our security. Sure, we pray as we did a little while ago for the medics as they work on vaccines. We want God to help those scientists to develop something which will help us to get back to life a bit more normal on planet Earth. But we're not finding our ultimate hope and our ultimate security there. That's just a good thing we're praying that God will bless us with along the way. We're finding the ultimate in God himself. And as we do that, we want to help our friends, our neighbours, our family members who are trusting in the good things God gives rather than in God himself. We want to say, it's crazy to trust temporary things. They won't deliver. They're not strong enough. They can't save us. And to, to just to encourage us, others as well as ourselves not to slip into modern-day idolatry, but instead to seek God for that relationship with our Creator that will sustain and that will give us significance and satisfaction and security in this life, through death and beyond, into forever. Amen.